This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. My guests today are Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee and Dr. Rayshawn Ray. Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee is a Senior Fellow in Governance Studies, the Director of the Center for Technology Innovation, and the Co-Editor-in-Chief of Tech Tank. Dr. Turner-Lee researches public policy designed to enable equitable access to technology across the United States and to harness its power to create change in communities across the world. She is an expert on the intersection of race, wealth, and technology within the context of civic engagement, criminal justice, and economic development. Dr. Turner-Lee comes to Brookings after serving as Vice President and Chief Research and Policy Officer at Multicultural Media, Telcom, and Internet Council, MNTC a national nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting and preserving equal opportunity and civil rights in the mass media, telecommunications, and broadband industries. Dr. Turner-Lee has been cited in the New York Times, Washington Post, San Francisco Chronicle, Communications Daily, Multi-Channel News, and Washington Informer. She can also be seen or heard on NPR, NBC News, ABC, and more. She has testified before Congress, and she is the chair of the Telecommunications Policy Research Conference, which is committed to joining policymakers and academics around significant tech policy issues. Her new book, Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass, Brookings Press 2021, examines the history and the consequences of the digital divide. Dr. Rayshawn Ray, a David M. Rubenstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution, is a professor of sociology and the executive director of the Lab for Applied Social Sciences Research, or the LASSR, at the University of Maryland, College Park. He is also one of the co-editors of Context Magazine, Sociology for the Public. Dr. Ray's research addresses the mechanisms that manufacture and maintain racial and social inequality, with a particular focus on police-civilian relations, health disparities, and voting behavior. His work also speaks to the ways in which inequality may be attenuated through racial uplift activism and social policy. Dr. Ray has published over 50 books, articles, and book chapters, and roughly 50 op-eds. Recently, Dr. Ray published the book, How Families Matter, Simply Complicated Intersections of Race, Gender, and Work, along with Pamela Brayboy Jackson, and another edition of Race and Ethnic Relations in the 21st Century, History, Theory, Institutions, and Policy, which has been adopted nearly 40 times in college courses. Ray has written for The Washington Post, The New York Times, Newsweek, Business Insider, Huffington Post, and the NBC News. And now, some exciting news. We are currently in the middle of a series of live events on ethics and technology scheduled over the next few weeks. Next Tuesday, May 18th, I'll host a fireside chat with former CIA officer and former NSA advisor to Joe Biden, Yael Eisenstein, who oversaw Facebook's global elections integrity operations for political advertising and has since become one of Facebook's leading critics. The following week on May 25th, I'm hosting a screening of the new documentary, Coded Bias, followed by a Q&A with the director, Shalini Kantaya. 
All events are free, virtual, and open to the public, but space is limited. Check out our website, www.etcalpoly.org, for more information about the events and to reserve your spot. Hope to see you there. And now on to my conversation with Nicole and Rayshawn. Hi, Dr. Ray. Hi, Dr. Turnerly. Hi, thanks for having us. Thank you for having us on. So, Dr. Turnerly, I've heard you talk about the digital divide. What is the digital divide? Whoa, it depends on how much time we have for this podcast, <laughs> Deb. You know, there's so much to say about the digital divide, you know, just for people who are just getting on board with this term and this concept. This is not a new concept. It's been around for decades. My dear friend, Larry Irving, when he was at the Department of Commerce, actually coined the term digital divide. And back then it was very binary. It was who has access to the Internet. And at the time, it really wasn't the Internet per se, as we know it now, but who didn't and who had access to a device a computer and who did not. Today, as we look at what's happened as a result of this pandemic, the digital divide has been correlated with systemic inequalities. And Deb, I actually have a book coming out on this in the next few months. It's called Digitally Invisible, How the Internet is Creating the New Underclass. And what I mean by this digitally invisible set of folks is that in my travels across the U.S., we're now seeing that not only is it about the binary experience of not being connected to the internet, it's the experience of not having the financial collateral to be able to order a ride-sharing service or to purchase online. It's the experience of the lack of affordability to broadband, where you're not sure if you have to choose between broadband and bread, and oftentimes people are choosing bread. And it's the lack of understanding about the implications of being disconnected or transitioning from an analog to online space that has us sort of in this quagmire because people are missing out or having opportunities of social mobility foreclosed on them. So I would just say to everybody, this is not an easy concept. That's why I'm writing a book about it, right? But it's one that we have to pay attention to, particularly as we've seen remote work, remote education, remote healthcare, remote access to public benefits become the drivers for the type of competitiveness individually as well as within communities. And that's gonna determine the extent to which we as a community and we as individuals have improved quality of lives as well as life chances. You know, I can't wait to read this book. Digital Divide is something I think about every single day because I live in Oakland. It is right across yeah. the bridge from Silicon Valley and San Francisco, one of the most digitally proficient and significant spaces in the country. And every day, working from home. I have some of the slowest internet speeds I've ever experienced. I pay more for internet than anywhere else I've ever paid. There are limited amounts of places that will provide service in Oakland because the infrastructure is so eroded. And yes. I use the word eroded, but I don't think it's ever been equitably built up in the first place. So I feel this issue every single day as I try to upload my videos for my teaching or as I try to access the internet. And it takes me longer every single time to the point Listen. where I don't do some things. So this is really important. I've been looking for, to talk to somebody about this for a very long time. Why, why did we get to a place of a digital divide? Who does the digital divide? Yeah, well, look, first and foremost, I have a lot of friends in Oakland. 
they're not just living in Oakland for their bad internet, but it's also more affordable, right? Than Silicon right. Valley. And that speaks a lot to this argument that I'm making in the book and I make across the country, which is we cannot any longer sort of look at digital as a consumptive product of the privilege. We really have to think about digital access as a product that is part of the responsibility in the social contract of the United States, because without it, what are you not gaining? And if you have poor quality of service, how do we expect, and this is particularly the case in LA County, we had an event not too long ago with the superintendent of Hartford School that basically mirrored what happened in LA County, where we had thousands, not just a couple of hundred, but thousands of young people who have gone lost when it came to online education because they didn't have access to the internet. That to me, again, is a very problematic uh, challenge that we have right now. We need to do something about it. I mean, how we have gotten here is a long story, Deb. <laughs> and I know that my colleague Rashad is on. I mm -hmm. want to make sure we have a full conversation. But clearly how we've gotten here is that the internet has always been sort of an invention of light touch regulation. It has been something that has primarily been driven by the private sector. In fact, most of the networks that we have in this country today have had private sector investment. We can't get too mad at them for that because guess what? That's why we're doing things that we do today, like remote work. What is challenging, however, is now that the pandemic has really surfaced just how bad digital inequity is, it's important that we figure out ways that we develop either more public-private sector partnerships around infrastructure. The promise of the Biden infrastructure plan, I think, provides a down payment on what is actually going to be double the amount of money that's going to be allocated to it because we have all parts of the country to fill. There's some places in this country where there are more cows than people. And that's a problem, right? When it comes to getting connections. I, I was on a show not too long ago where a, a nonprofit collaborative talked about using mules to bring fiber optics to the top of the hills in Kentucky. I mean, that was like just last week. So we got here because primarily broadband has been seen as a consumptive commodity and not a productive commodity. And so as we think about how does this fare against other critical infrastructure like water, electricity? We've got to think about in many respects, how do we centralize broadband access so people can literally be able to walk, live and, and learn and work in any community and have what they need to be productive? But then two, how do we make sure it's affordable? And how do we ensure that the quality of service that we're giving people is not second class broadband, which only leads to second class citizenship? So have me back on, Deb, and I can talk more about the history when my book <laughs> come out okay but that's how we got here <laughs> anytime anytime dr ray i want to bring you in here because i'm reminded of your comment made recently that the disparities often stem from unaddressed structural inequalities that undergird the rest of our lives. This is an observation you made in the context of a new report that details the extent of COVID-19 as a pandemic's disproportionate effect on Black Detroit residents. Does the digital divide replicate existing disparities and structural inequalities? Does it expand them or something other? What's your take? Yes, unfortunately it does. I mean, it definitely replicates existing disparities. And it could be argued that in an era where technology is prime, that it actually expands them. And in COVID-19, during the pandemic, I think we've seen that. The report that we did in Detroit was taking a deep dive into why we see uh, Black residents in a city like Detroit, but it could be any city around the country, including Oakland. All of us have Oakland roots. I, I live there when I was doing my postdoc at Berkeley. And no matter where you are around the country, that oftentimes, if you are living in a predominantly black or brown neighborhood, particularly that's low income, mm -hmm. you will also see that the digital divide is prominent there. 
And as Nicole's research highlights, not only there, but also in places in rural America that might be predominantly black or white. And so when we think through this, what we saw in Detroit is the reason why it becomes a big deal are things that we take for granted when we have more resources, things we take for granted when we're living in urban centers, everything from being able to hop on an app like Instacart and order food, everything from being able to have things delivered for you, to hop on Amazon and be able to order a package that comes to your house. But the biggest one deals with education. We know that there are already huge disparities when it comes to education, particularly when it comes to funding. And despite public perception, about who receives more school funding, we know that individuals attending non-white schools receive significantly less funding for schools than people living in predominantly white school districts. And what we found was that the parents in Detroit talked about the difficulties of not only trying to have a working class service job and work and help their children with schooling, with virtual learning, as we've been calling it, remote learning, but also having access to broadband that is fast enough to do the sort of things that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Be on a Zoom class, be on Google Classrooms, be able to see your teacher, be able to actually see clearly the images that are on there. And then there's another part of this dealing with equipment. Do you actually have access to a computer? Do you have access to a laptop? Do you have access to a printer or a scanner? All the things that children and families have needed during the pandemic has not only led to an expansion of the digital divide, but also an expansion of the educational divide and the achievement gap in the United States. I wanted to pull a thread out of that. There's something that I'm thinking a lot about in the context of working as an educator in the context of a polytechnic university, especially right now in the middle of this pandemic for the reasons that you talk about. But the thing that I really want to talk about here is that the digital divide and access to tech early in life tracks students throughout primary education through to college. This is something that I see in the context of a polytechnic uh, university specifically. Historically and currently and at my own university, I see those divides play out in the context of early digital education at the university, which then gets translated into learning how to be agile around computers, learning and knowing and being agile about coding, and then getting through the first would have been described to me as weeder classes. Uh, early computer science and early engineering classes are often called weeder classes. And then getting jobs in tech, which is one of the most lucrative hiring arenas. It made me think a lot about the ways in which early digital inequities perpetuate massive social divides that follow later in life, including financial mobility divisions. I, I, I mean, this is a aside here. Don't get me wrong. I love my job as a professor in the humanities. I love my object of study. I'm grateful that my training as a humanist allows me to think in certain ways. And I'm proud of students who take the humanities route or the social science or political science route. And I understand that they're learning important civic lessons and how to think critically and how to understand the dynamics of power, culture, and, and human values. But I think it's also commonly acknowledged that technical expertise, particularly in the digital space, which is a space that rewards the kids who are able to learn agility and computing early because they belonged on one side, the digital divide, that that provides significant employment opportunities later, financial mobility, career security, especially in this hyper-technical moment. And folks who don't learn that agility can't access that arena often, and they're often locked out early. How do you think about this? And what, if anything, needs to change in the context of education? And I'm talking about all levels of education, including the structure of college education. 
I mean, I think that there's, um, Deb, those are really important points, and I would actually divide them into what I've called digital divide and digital acculturation, right? Mm -hmm. the, on the first hand of the digital divide, we do know that access to technology, and particularly what we experienced in the pandemic, bordered on being equated with Brown versus Board of Education decision in 1954 mm -hmm. when kids didn't have equal access to resources. Clearly, um, and this is something that I've been working on in terms of a blog, but also for policy, we need a no child left offline provision uh, within this infrastructure bill with the Department of Education that does not shy away from technology for students, but actually embraces it. It's an unfortunate reality as I was doing research for the book, there were two places that I visited right before the pandemic and two schools. They were schools that were the beneficiaries of the Connect Ed program that Obama had announced during his presidency, which is around 99% access for our public schools. We never met that goal because that program was subsequently scrapped, but there were two schools that I went to, one in a black rural community of Marion, Alabama, and one in West Phoenix, Arizona, which was predominantly Latina. Both schools had access to technology. They each had a one-to-one -one solution when it came to tablets. Both schools had principals that were charismatic enough at the K through uh, 12 level to get their professors motivated around these concerns. And both schools, unfortunately, were still low performing when it came to state standards, despite the increased motivation and the creativity being used by teachers to actually infuse technology into their curricula. When I came back and I wrote that chapter, it was very hard for me because of the fact that I felt like I had just seen two principals that were becoming like heroes. On one hand, in West Phoenix, it was in Maricopa County, and these kids all had cell phones in this school, and not for the reasons that we think, but because of the fear of deportation, that would be the only way to get in touch with their parents. And in Black rural um, Alabama, these kids all had access that they were able to bring home. But during the pandemic, these tablets have become like books without paper, as the principal actually stated recently. So what does that suggest? It goes back to what Dr. Ray has said, that these systemic inequalities that are rooted in educational inequalities sort of parallel when it comes to digital access. And it's not to say that the use of technology, as I heard from several educators prior to the pandemic, was fully welcomed by schools as well, nor is it a lot to say, particularly in the uh, lower schools, and I'll let Rayshawn talk more about colleges, that there was equity when it came to any other resource or testing or access to educational supports. We saw the same type of parallels when 15 to 16 million of the kids who did not have broadband access in schools, nine million of, um, did not have it at home, nor a tablet, nine million of them were disproportionately students of color, poor students, parents were, in, were frontline workers, sibling was actually taking care of multiple children in the household, 35% of those families shared one PC or tablet. To me, that's a travesty. And I have spoken to over 2,000 educators in the last 12 to 14 months, suggesting to them that even in the rush to get our students back to school, they are disservicing, and this goes to the second point, which is around digital acculturation, the use of these skills in an economy that is no longer going to be defined the way that we used to see it. 100,000 businesses, small businesses closed as a result of the pandemic. Most of them local small businesses, most of them black or women-owned businesses. What does that mean? As Rayshawn has said, the nature of our manufacturing is now part of the digital ecosystem. 
I have a 14-year-old. It is very trying to get her to stay active on virtual education. <laughs> but I have to keep reminding her that this is what the new workforce looks like. Your ability to work collaboratively, independently, use new tools are actually going to be the architecture necessary for education. But again, and I'll stop here, we cannot in this digital acculturation space, sort of excuse what was already flawed before we started even talking about the overlay of the digital divide, that we're not encouraging black and brown students to actually take on these careers or to use these tools in ways where it makes sense for them. Nor are we encouraging their parents, who are the greatest levelers of social mobility and education, to actually understand that these tools are trustworthy and they have the ability to, to carve a pathway for their students. And so I think we need to do something about it in this country. I think it is a travesty, it's disappointing, and it's insulting that we have seen a decision of 1954 come true in 2021. And we still have not come up with a hard plan of no child left offline to actually deal with that, particularly for those students not in higher education. I mean, the only thing that I can remotely add to that, because I mean, that was such a, an amazing set of points, is that the divide that happens when kids are younger starts to exacerbate as they get older. And I think in a time period of COVID, it's going to be um, sobering, to say the least, to compare children, not only the have and the have nots, but the haves who have been able to maximize technological skills versus those who haven't. And I would bet that the normal divide that we see existing over the summer, where we know that the achievement gap increases during the summer, that I would expect to that, that 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 has happened during COVID. And not only are kids continuing to learn if they have access to these resources, but now they have a new set of skills a new set of skills that as teenagers and in their early 20s is going to serve them well for jobs. They're going to be able to talk about the length of time they've been engaging in certain things. I mean, personally, I mean, my kids are young, they're nine and 10, and they already know not only, of course, how to type and do those sort of things, but they know how to scan. They know how to pull up different programs on, on their computers. They know how to do all these different things with technology that other kids simply do not know how to do. And so it has to do with these access to resources that we oftentimes talk about and the various ways that we see during crises that inequalities increase. They don't simply decrease. And technology, I think, is one of the biggest things at the forefront of that. And the, the other reason why I think this is important, and I know we'll talk about this a little bit later, but it also has to do with the type of information people are consuming and where they're getting that information from. So not only are we seeing a political divide there, there are also ways that we're seeing divides in terms of access to information by social class, by race and by place that have a lot to do with technology, people's access to broadband and people's access to technological equipment. There's this other area that I think is also an area that we're also learning about as well, which is for all of our students, those students that were, you know, K through 12 to college, because people did not have access, we have seen what I call like this punitive culture mm -hmm. where we're now redefining and Rayshawn and I have talked about this, such many of the prog you know, progress that we've made within school districts and in educational systems when it comes to discipline or reward, we're now seeing concepts like virtual truancy. I remember early on in the pandemic in Michigan, a 15 year old was arrested for not logging on to school 
school regularly. And it was interesting to me because, you know, we did not understand that the child did not have access. So I do think on one side, it's a, it's a learning curve for us to, who and those people in the educational space as well, and social sciences, to understand the implications of digital access on these narratives that we have built in the historical legacies of systemic inequalities. But it's also one, and I tell schools this all the time, for schools to recognize that they are part of the community as well. Mm -hmm. And so in being part of a low-income community, for example, I am always shocked and surprised when I have these conversations as to why some of these schools felt blindsided by this. Mm -hmm. And so encouraging them to get to know their families in different ways, asking them, what's your broadband access at home? How mm -hmm. many devices do you have? Are you in a safe environment? Can you be the all virtual kid or do we need to do home visits? For me, this is a period of the reimagination of education at all stops. And until we get that right, I think we're going to find ourselves in the same conversations where the current system just disadvantages certain populations. You know, Dr. Turner Lee, I've been thinking about something else that I've heard you talk about quite frequently. I've heard you use the phrase New Deal, which is a reference to FDR's New Deal, which is just to give our listeners some context. The New Deal was a series of programs and projects instituted during the Great Depression that both got the economy kicking by creating new jobs and created important new programs. I've heard you talk about that as your vision for what might help bridge the digital divide. This is something I've been thinking a lot about, especially in this moment moment where we have a new administration and the context of a pandemic. Some people have compared that to a wartime economy or to the Great Depression. And, and that in this moment, there's an opportunity to kind of create those new jobs, not look at this as a moment where jobs are fundamentally lost, but an opportunity for job and program creation. I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. What does your vision of a new deal look like? Yeah, I, I always have to caveat this because I had a um, majority with Jim Clyburn on a podcast and he said, Nicole, I don't know why you keep calling it a tech new deal because Roosevelt was a racist. <laughs> he said you need to call it a fair new deal and base it on Truman's presidency because he was the one that actually started dealing with civil rights. So now I call it the fair tech new deal. I told Mr. Clyburn I wasn't born then, but I do know that that actually did jump. Uh, even though a lot of things weren't instituted, it actually started a conversation. I've heard President Biden talk about it too. But what I've tried to think about is all these post-it notes that have been sitting on the walls right now, people trying to brainstorm how to bring this country together and what that looks like for economic recovery. And interestingly enough, as we think about economic recovery, we keep defaulting in this country on those industries that I think are going to really be hard to recover. And at the same time, as Rashawn said, we're ordering food online, we're getting groceries delivered to our homes, we're working remotely, we're learning remotely. And yet we're not looking at that as a productive capacity for economic recovery. So I put the Tech New Deal together thinking about how do we actually take the framework of where we were with the depressed economic uh, status and how do we look at technology as complementary to certain things, but also a driver for that. And it's basically broken down by my 20 plus experiences in this space, which is to say, yes, we need to deal with infrastructure deployments and we need to deal with adoption and use. Let's get a map right so we know where broadband is and where it's not. Not. Let's not invest in places that are overinvested or overbuilt. Let's get to the Mississippi Delta and other areas where people, you know, may not even have functional water, let alone broadband. But guess what? They need both. And then let's really look at our adoption activities in schools and telehealth and education, you know, employment and what we need to do there. But then I started to add the second bullet, which I think is modeled off of uh, Roosevelt's Tech New Deal. One of the things that he did was to create these training programs, whether 
was the civilian corps or was other corps that he put together where he put people to work on infrastructure build. That, in many respects, led to many of the dams, bridges, and roads in this country because they not only put people to work, but they paid them livable wage scale jobs. We have in the technology space a couple of really interesting advancements down the pipe. We've got 5G technology. The jobs that are actually a part of that, from fiber pulling to troubleshooting to uh, customer service, these are livable wage scale jobs, and in some cases, they offer union opportunities. We also look at companies like Amazon and other companies that have made a lot of money during this pandemic where their quarterly earnings still maintain itself and they're creating jobs. So we got to think about what do we need to do to either reskill workers who are not going to be able to return to the workforce or offer these opportunities through the civilian course so people can actually learn what the new infrastructure is. It may not be roads and bridges. It's more like bits and bytes, but it's equally important. And then I also offer that we need to think about maybe a national digital service core that allows people to go out and not only build the infrastructure, but maybe in the course of uh, helping us to get, you know, walking around with laptops to sign people up for COVID vaccinations or figuring out ways to help families troubleshoot their problems with their laptops for schools. They actually also learn. And I think we have a national service model that could be uh, exemplary uh, example, of, an example of how we actually do this. Then I would say, finally, what I thought about with the Tech New Deal is local infrastructure. And that goes back to my experiences in my book of traveling around the country. We need to make sure that these are not federal big pot programs, that they're actually getting to local communities that are trying to do stuff. Whether it's a young man that I met in Nebraska who basically told me that he's leased everything except his wife to bring Wi-Fi to his 500-person community, or it's a young woman, I just got an email from her, who's 80-plus years old in Cleveland, Ohio, who is teaching her other seniors how to use the internet for you know, just productive activities from creating church bulletins to making sure that their fellow seniors are staying healthy and well. We need to invest in those folks, and we need to invest in local diverse startups because we know in this country that small businesses hire local people. And so I frame this as a tech new deal. I've gotten a lot of traction on it. I've spoken to a lot of folks about it. But I think the reason I did it is because having been in this field for a long time, we throw a lot of money, we throw a lot of proposals, and we throw the possibility of a lot of partnerships. And what we need is some permanence around what this looks like so we can come into this strategic, calculated with measurements that say that we actually did a better job than the year before in getting people connected. I want to switch gears a bit and talk a little bit about policing and tech, an area of expertise for both of you. Dr. Ray, you've commented frequently on the Derek Chauvin trial and in a piece titled, After Chauvin's Conviction for the Murder of George Floyd, Will Policing Finally Change in America? You commented on the role of video in that trial. Many people have commented on the significance of video evidence in that conviction. What does video as a technology change about policing? Tech and video changes the ball game in mm -hmm. policing because the things that happen in the dark now come to light. And we have to ask ourselves, will we be, will we even be having this conversation without video technology and primarily video technology that people control themselves? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the key point. Mobile phone technology, smartphone technology. Without that teenager's bravery, will we have that? Without uh, the person who was ho who happened to be observing a police interaction in South Carolina and hid in the bushes, if he had not captured the murder 
of um, of what was happening to Walter Scott in South South Carolina, we wouldn't have that. I mean, the list could go on and on about the various incidents that we have. So so video really changes the ball game in policing. And this is the bottom line with the Chauvin trial is all of us watched that video, uh, which ended up being nine minutes and, and 29 seconds. Um, so essentially missed kind of that, that first minute of when that was happening. And then she started recording, but there were other videos as well. There was body worn camera footage on behalf of police officers. There were street cameras that were there. And all of us saw that video and knew that Chauvin should be convicted of murder. But the way that racism operates in the United States, particularly when it comes to policing, even though this case was a slam dunk from the beginning, we all then looked at the scoreboard to see if the basket was actually going to count. And I think that's what video evidence does, is that it changes the ball game when it comes to what's going on. But there are other aspects of technology that matter as well. Not only is it simply about recording it, but then it's about easily being able to disseminate it. People are able to do Facebook Lives, like when Diamond Reynolds captured kind of the, the incident of Philando Castile losing his life. So we know that mobile phone technology and then social media allow people to circumvent traditional modes of communication. And that's what we've, we've, what we've seen during the Black Lives Matter movement. The, the other part that I think technology does is based on algorithms, um, and of course, we'll we'll problematize this in a second. <laughs> but based on on algorithms of social media, part of what's happened is that technology has played a keen role on our new American awakening, primarily by white people who are now saying, "Wow, black people are still being treated like this, like like they you know they just didn't want to want to see it." And part of what happened, particularly during COVID, is that as they saw what happened to George Floyd. As more of them started using the hashtag Black Lives Matter or police brutality, their algorithms on social media changed, whether that was Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, all the other things we can mention, TikTok, all this stuff. And part of what they started seeing were other videos of Black people being brutalized in similar ways when they were not attacking or had a weapon. They also saw Black teenagers disproportionately brutalized by the police relative to whites. And then they also saw some other interesting things. They also saw white people engaging in similar incidents in similar types of behaviors, even at times escalating situations more and walking away alive. And I think collectively, technology has been able to highlight that in ways that I think have been really important for the Black Lives Matter movement, really important for how we think about uh, transforming and reimagining policing. And but but again, look, videos can't do it alone because we know that obviously in the past, like Rodney King being one of the first notable incidents captured on film in that way of, of recent times. I mean, originally those officers got off and we know that body worn camera footage actually helps police officers at times more than it helps the public. It's oftentimes a combination of um, a bystander, or even like in the case of the army lieutenant in Virginia, filming their own brutal brutalization coupled with body-worn camera footage to hold police officers accountable. So, I mean, technology has changed policing and it's also starting to shift how we think about policy, not only thinking about how we regulate the policy, but also bolstering more evidence that police brutality is something that we really need to focus on. Are you concerned at all about the flip side of tech and policing, namely its use as surveillance technologies disproportionately deployed on communities that lack political capital, communities of color or other targeted groups? Most definitely. And, and I wrote about this last year 
wrote a report about the influence of essentially AI in policing and highlighted a, a series of things. So in particular, it becomes about a surveillance state. So we could take a few different examples. Take San Diego, which is easily aiming to become this smart city. Well, part of the issue there is who is getting surveilled and who's not. We can also start thinking about license plate readers, like what, what they're aiming to implement in Nashville, where I've been involved in a series of discussions because, of course, those license plate readers are aimed to capture people who are engaging in certain types of traffic infractions, but to also capture people who have committed some sort of felony or crime and police are able to track them through their license plates. Well, the issue, of course, isn't exactly the tech in this case. It's about where the tech is deployed. Mm -hmm. So we start seeing place-based discrimination with tech, um, similar to the way that police officers have used other sorts of tools to look at crime and social networks in one part of town compared to the other part of town. And so we see these patterns. I mean, it's, it's highly concerning. I mean, of course, we could go to the full extent even beyond policing, but throughout the criminal justice pipeline and start looking at the way that algorithms are used for sentencing and also who gets bail, what their amount of bail is. We already know that there are huge forms of inequities there. And then, of course, we can get into facial recognition and we see a lot of issues there. So, yes, there are a lot of reasons to be concerned. What's interesting, though, is when we actually look at public attitudes, while Black people are overwhelmingly suspicious and skeptical about a lot of things, when you ask some specific questions about policing and surveillance, Black people compared to white people are oftentimes much more open to that. We did an, an analysis looking at how people felt about body-worn cameras and just technology and surveillance in general. And it was interesting. White people felt that it was a violation of their First Amendment rights to be profiled in that way. And, and at times, even their Fourth Amendment rights. Um, Black people, on the other hand, and, and also Latinos to a certain extent, their responses were interesting. They said, our neighborhoods are already over-surveilled. Right. We are already over-policed. Mm -hmm. If we can provide some type of oversight that might be equitably put in place to not only capture what people in our community are doing, but also when people come to our community like police, then we're open for it. And I think that's because in recent history, people have seen the way that technology has helped illuminate racial health disparities when it comes to policing. And I think it's a few stats people really need to know that are important. Not only are Black people about two and a half times more likely than whites to be killed by police, but Black people are about three and a half times more likely to be killed by police when they're not attacking or have a weapon. We can name off several people that fit that. Black teenagers, it's particularly Black male teenagers, are about 21 times more likely than white male teenagers to be killed by police. And every one in 1,000 Black males growing up in the United States can expect to die due to police violence. People living in predominantly Black communities or even Black people in predominantly white spaces that also lead to an overlevel of criminalization and weaponization of Blackness, they view oftentimes technology as a way to highlight their own experience and their plight in ways that what happens to them is oftentimes in the dark and they aim to bring that to the light. And Deb, if I could jump in here, I think that has a lot to do with Rayshawn's comment around this use of the smartphone and technology, particularly in these recent police incidents, as being like a book, you know, having access mm -hmm. to a book. It gives us a sense of participatory power for people who have a history of being locked out of not just 
social and economic opportunities, but not being able to be their authentic true selves and share what those experiences are. So I do agree that, you know, when we talk about surveillance capital, it is very problematic that we have new tools that are refined for that type of surveillance that could work against communities of color. But communities of color have been surveilled, you know, dating back to public safety cameras that were supposed to look at traffic and now are being used in other ways. But I would suggest, and, and basically this goes on what Rashawn is talking about, we're working on a project around this right now, Brookings, that these technologies in many respects, they have their good and they have their bad. But what often happens, because these experiences are not reflected by the designers and developers of the tech, the mm -hmm. people that you talked about that live across from Oakland, we need to do something to make them better and to optimize them on people of color. Right now, we're in a state, for example, in facial recognition technologies where they do not identify people of darker hues, or mm -hmm. you have to have certain lighting, or black women who change their hair are not necessarily correctly and aptly identified. We've seen countless cases in Detroit just recently. People are picked up for crimes that they didn't commit simply because the facial recognition technology identified them as a criminal. Members of the Congressional Black Caucus have been subjected to that through uh, various technologies. And oftentimes we're quick to ban those technologies for the very reasons and sociological implications that Rayshawn and I are talking about. But I've been on this trek to say, hey, let's perfect it. Because one of the things that the perfection of that technology forces companies to do, it forces them to look at their own internal biases, their explicit biases, and ensure that they're build, building technologies that are inclusive and equitable. And to me, that really is the turning point for the conversation of the future technology. Emerging technologies are here to stay. The question becomes, and I, and I love the way this conversation has been going, and I recently, I wrote something on this as well, and we're gonna be talking about this more at Brookings, the extent to which these tools are weaponized against people or they're used for the type of empowerment that allows people to sort of travail what has historically been an oppressive factor and to do something about it. So that 14-year-old young woman or Faden Santana, 14-year-old woman in, in Minnesota or Faden Santana with Walter Scott or the plumber that picked up Rodney King's video of that original police beating, those are civilians who are trying to make a difference. And it's important for us to continue that culture so that they're not being pushed away when it comes to actually capturing those experiences that are happening within communities of color. Before we go any further, this is a good time to plug the May 25th event uh, with director Shalini Kantaya, the director of Coded Bias that I'm hosting. So listeners and Dr. Turner Lee, Dr. Ray, please come to that event. Uh, it's an important film uh, about precisely the topics that you have just covered. I wanted to pick up on a thread here about AI in policing efforts, particularly a recent concern by the ACLU that has been in the spotlight recently, which carries examples of AI using video footage with facial recognition to actually catch the wrong perpetrator. Misrecognitions that, as you pointed out, overlap with racial biases that are encoded in the AI technologies themselves by our friends across the bridge. Or for example, AI being used to facilitate bail prices or using a calculus that employs race and social class as factors in evaluation with the consequence of disproportionately penalizing underrepresented and poor communities. And I guess one question that comes up here is about how biases in the tech industry, the legal system, and the structures of policing both overlap and exacerbate each other in a sort of series of feedback loops. How could we think about those feedback loops? 
Yeah, I mean, I'll jump in. I mean, this is another area that has me both interested in and exhausted by it because it goes back to, I think, many things, Rashad, that I've been talking about. Some of these are common sense, but they also belie a sociotechnical approach to these issues that oftentimes just gets dismissed, right? I mean, how sometimes technologists can say, I didn't realize that this particular algorithm was going to bias people from healthcare simply by using a variable outside of race that said how much people pay into healthcare. It, it just ignores all the historical and sociological legacies that affect the subject of many of these algorithms. I think at the end of the day, to your question, this is a huge concern. And the concern that we have to grapple with is, you know, I think three things. One is, are we using computers to automate decisions that honestly should not be automated? Mm -hmm. When we start to think about, you know, protected groups and areas where we know that there's going to be a lot more discussion in terms of mitigating biases that have historically been laid, like credit, like housing, like employment, like healthcare, should we even be going into a space where we're actually making those more digitized when we know we haven't solved them externally? I always think of the tech industry as often coming out quick and breaking things and fixing them later mm -hmm. and you know it's very hard to fix somebody's credit or if the determination says that they're unworthy of that credit and it's very hard to convince people that the algorithm is good because it's directing them to those choices that are based on their economic strata so in the case of what happened with a HUD case you know low-income people were only seeing low-income eligible housing from the standpoint of it not being choices right and that's something that this algorithmic economy has actually developed but with that being the case, should a decision be automated? What type of data is being used to automate that decision? Going back, Deb, to your criminal justice example, if the data that we're using is already overrepresentative of people of color because we know disproportionately arrests happen more in black and brown communities, then that means it's going to be skewed against those folks when it comes to the release or the detainment. If those groups are also underrepresented in certain data sets like creditworthiness, it's going to have the same effect. And then I think finally, the other area that we all grapple with is the predictive nature of these models. So are the predictions human-centered? Are they taking into account that computers are trained by fallible human beings that come with their own implicit and explicit biases? We at Brookings, and, and in particular my work, we've been looking at how do you solve this from an interdisciplinary perspective? And how do you go in with the threshold of perhaps civil rights laws being the fundamental premise from which you build? It's not putting you know extra onus on companies to be lawful, but what it's suggesting is that we don't want to see these models sort of regress on the type of equal opportunities that have already been placed out there. It's highly impossible for an employment algorithm to say that they do blind interviews if the employer is using a facial recognition database to know what color you are or what your zip code is. And, and Rashawn, you would say the same thing. We knew about these kind of proxies as sociologists many, many years ago. The uh, tech space is primarily just catching up. Mm -hmm. So to your question, Deb, I think a lot more work has to be done in the space. It's a conversation that needs to combine the technical cadence as well, the public policy prescriptions. And to your point, the feedback loop. Where are consumers empowered to let these algorithmic developers know that what you're saying about me is not how I want to be depicted? 
connected. Tanya Sweeney, I'll just end here, does some really great work around the use of Black and Latina sounding names and how Black and Latina people, because of the sound of their names, are often geared towards higher interest credit card offerings. And once they click that, it's like clickbait. That's all mm -hmm. they get. <laughs> and you can't break that algorithm because the algorithm is optimized for our micro behaviors. So I think that feedback loop is also critical. And I hope to continue the work that I'm doing, working on a chapter on this as well as my book. But for me, this is like the next biggest challenge of civil rights if we don't get this right. And it is definitely going to be, I think, because the internet is so opaque, one that we will have a harder time to solve. Famously, Amazon's face surveillance technology became the target of opposition in 2018 after the ACLU conducted a test of their facial recognition tool called Recognition with a K, which Amazon had been marketing to police departments. The software incorrectly matched 28 members of Congress, identifying them as other people who have been arrested for a crime. Jacob Snow, a technology and civil liberties attorney for the ACLU wrote that, and I'm quoting him here. The false matches were disproportionately of people of color, including six members of the Congressional Black Caucus, among them civil rights legend Representative John Lewis. These results demonstrate why Congress should join the ACLU in calling on a moratorium on law enforcement use of facial surveillance. He furthermore cited academic research that already shows that facial recognition is less accurate for darker skinned faces and for women. Is there a way to equitably use these technologies in policing or do we need a moratorium on these technologies? You know, I think that's such a great question. And I, I'm, I so love this question because I'm going to sort of timestamp it, right? Because we've seen a lot since the original use of the technology and the misuse and misidentification of the faces of Congressional Black Caucus members, including the Honorable and late John Lewis. I mean, first and foremost, anything that gets developed without the inclusiveness of the lived experiences of subjects is going to be fallible, right? And so mm -hmm. part of what the conversation I've been trying to have with people is if you don't factor folks at the table that understand these experiences, mm -hmm. then guess what? Um, it doesn't matter that the tool may not have been used at the confidence level that the engineers said or that the retesting of it is showing that there are errors based on X. These are products that are going to market and whether for commercial or public sector use, they have implications and consequences. And so what has happened since the pandemic is that we actually have seen a, a moratorium on all facial recognition projects, right? You've seen it with Amazon, with Microsoft and several others where they've actually just put it to rest for a moment to allow for, I think, some guidance and some conversation on what these tools represent in not just criminal justice, but generally in society at large. With that being the case, I want to draw listeners to what happened to on January 6th. We actually saw a, an insurrection of the Capitol. I was here in D.C. at the time. And um, we have been able to identify many of those folks through a combination of facial recognition and social media surveillance. So what is so interesting to me about this is that this tool has so many possibilities, but yet it is sort of disproportionately um, affecting communities of color. And we see this along the lines of many types of surveillance tools. Look at the treatment and the discussions that we're having around the January 6th insurrectionists that were able to walk out of the Capitol and look at the surveillance of, you know, the corollary of, of Black Lives Matter and the type of aggressive use of surveillance to identify what people have considered, you know, in a very Hoover-like fashion, people who are also anti-American. I say all this as a sociologist because I do think that we need to figure out where are the uses of these technologies 
How are these technologies being optimized to work on a variety of populations in a fair and inclusive way? Who's sitting at the table when we are developing these technologies? And mm -hmm. as you mentioned, Deb, what's the feedback loop if these technologies are going to be developed? And so until the January 6th uh, insurrection, and I was able to look at, and you know, many would argue was more social media surveillance of these insurrectionists because they took selfies, they were on TikTok, and they shared it. The bottom line is there was some use of, um, I believe, the Clearview FBI database that uses facial recognition technologies to find them. Mm -hmm. And so that's where I stand um, in support of the ACLU in terms of stopping and taking a pause until we get this right. But most importantly, what I would encourage people who are using these technologies and developing them to figure out, one, how to optimize the technical cadence so that it performs as well and accurate on me as it does with anybody else. And two, in the area of already flawed systems, systems that have demonstrated systemic oppression built into them, that we need to put in the appropriate guardrails so they're not used for manipulation or exploitation or misidentification. What do I mean by that? Right now, we don't have strong legislation or any type of directive at the state or local level when it comes to police use of facial recognition. We don't have anything that really directs us towards warrants on face detection. We don't have privacy law nationally that allows us to give some guardrails around data minimization. How long does an image stay? in a system. That's just on the public policy side. Then on the civil society side, we have these implications that come with the types of data that is actually used for these systems. It's no secret that research suggests that many mugshot repositories are used to train these systems. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? It means that overrepresented, over surveilled populations, over criminalized populations are going to be leading the training of the algorithm. And then third, we know in any use of technology, particularly in facial recognition technology and law enforcement, that we need a human-centered approach. What are the culture, the cultural principles, the values, the training that comes in the use of these technologies? Listen, these technologies are not going away. And why I sound like, you know, your Second Avenue preacher on this is because I keep telling people there are always going to be two sides of the coin when it comes to technological innovation. What we are suggesting in facial recognition as in other technologies that have the same ability to be oppressive, healthcare algorithms, educational algorithms, that we want the same type of rigor that goes into the design of the product that ensures that it's not just responsible or ethical, but again, that it's inclusive and it's lawful. And going in that direction, I think, changes the nature, especially since the ACLU's assessment came out prior to what we've actually seen its use now and what we're going to continue to see its use as. It comes with having an all-hands-on-deck interdisciplinary conversation with the appropriate public policy guardrails as well as civil society feedback to make these systems work. I constantly stay up at night. I'm not going to lie, Deb, because sometimes I think that there are technologies that I want to put my foot on and kind of squash it like an ant and make sure it never comes back. But then I start to think about the world in which we live and the way that these technologies, going back to the earlier part of our conversation, are revolutionizing and transforming our world, and in some cases, to the better. But I think where we've missed the mark is that tech companies may have misunderstood just how important civil society engagement is in these tools. 
And as a result, we need to find ways to do more cross collaboration or to scream when we have to scream if we feel that these technologies are going to extend the systemic inequalities that are already exist. And so, you know, people commonly hear me say, I will sit on a panel with an engineer any day. And yeah. I think the longest paper I ever wrote was with a, an engineer and a lawyer and myself as a sociologist. And I swear it took like a year to write this paper. But what it taught me was that our methodological approaches to these problems, they yes, they may be far apart, but there is this common ground, a framework that we can actually, you know, make some decisions on and where appropriate, pull people back. Because these are decisions that we don't want to have to go back and redress since we've already come up with the right remedies. No, what you're saying here makes a lot of sense to me. I think back to the genesis of my own interest in ethics and technology, and it really is thinking about the ways in which we need to kind of come together to bring in our own disciplinary truths that are self-evident into other contexts as well, and, and to work in dialogue in this context. And I also think about the fact that my own background and context for coming to ethical technology was actually a background in human rights and public policy myself. And so for that reason, I, I think a lot about the role of tech in public policy. And I think a lot about the ways in which public policy does or does not address some of the ethical questions in tech. I, I wanted to ask you about the ways in which private companies and their products get embedded in public policy and the ways in which public policy may or may not be equipped to address the technological products that then get embedded into them. Again, another, I think, kind of feedback loop. Law enforcement requests drive and incentivize innovation, for example, and then innovation proposals and production by companies get embedded in and then used in the context of law enforcement. So that's a feedback loop. Um, one problem that I think is pretty significant has to do with the fact that private companies are not accountable to public vetting in the same way that public policies and administrators are. They're accountable to the market. And as far as I can see, Amazon's question in creating the recognition technology that we've been discussing was, can we do this? Will we make money off of this? Will American law enforcement buy this? Not should we do this? How should Congress or how should the Biden administration or, or both approach regulation? You know, this is an interesting question, right? Because I think that there is still this narrative that too much regulation, as we've seen in the European Union, can stifle innovation. When you're more prescriptive on the hypothetical side, there's always a challenge that you will disincentivize the type of um you know, imagination and innovation that comes from, you know, new technological advances. With that being the case, we also have, and some have argued this, I know it's in the recent um, US AI report, where there's been an argument that, you know, countries like China are basically outpacing the United States on these technological trends just simply because we have too much bureaucracy. With that being the case, I think that it still doesn't give us a pass on what we need to do to make these technologies more equitable. Listen, there are gonna be a lot of technologies that many of us who are listening just don't care about, right? I'm okay with a publicity algorithm that tells me that I only watch like, you know, love stories and <laughs> melodramas, you know what I mean? And like, they just give me all those melodramas cause they just know who I am. And I'm pretty okay with the fact that they know that I like high heels, at least prior to the pandemic and that those get marketed to me. 
What I'm not okay with is potentially the ability of what the internet trolls around me about me that then gets translated into inferences about, you know, that that work into some of the more uh, disproportionate effects or disparate impacts. I'll give you a perfect example real quick. Internet knows that I like blue dresses. And as a result of knowing I like blue dresses, they might also pick up on the fact that I'm a mother of a daughter and they might pick up on the fact that she likes Barbies of color. And so they may infer that I'm a woman that likes blue dresses who has a daughter who buys a lot of products with the uh, skin color or the or the complexion of the dolls is much browner. And then they may assume that I buy too many dresses and then all of a sudden I'm turning around and I'm getting these 29, 30%, you know, high interest credit card offerings, much like the work that Latanya Sweeney at Harvard has talked about. With that being the case, I think this is an area where regulation needs to focus on the outcome determinations. There are not enough policymakers in D.C. that understand how algorithms work, mm-hmm. nor are there enough policymakers, and we need to do a better job of ramping up our government agencies that work on these issues, that have the knowledge of even fighting algorithms with algorithms. <laughs> and so when we have these hearings on the Hill with big tech folks, if you notice, the questions sometimes are very rudimentary because they don't understand the technology. With that being the case, the best place for policy is to determine whether or not there are going to be outcomes that come from these models that foreclose on those areas that affect either protected groups or areas of uh, sectoral protections in terms of you know equal opportunity, fair housing, fair credit, etc. That's the way that I see it, given the, the dearth of knowledge of regulators when it comes to these issues. But I also think to your point, we need to start teaching our computer scientists and we need to start teaching other students that want to go into this space more so about the laws, the norms and the markets that sort of compete in the design of new technological systems. I always tell engineers that you need to have a sociologist as a friend. If you don't Mm -hmm. have one, then you're not doing a good job. You need Mm -hmm. a social science friend. okay? the same person that maybe sits with you during finals and kind of keeps you honest. Because at the end of the day, many of the problems that we see in this space that are unethical have a lot to do with the limited knowledge that many of these developers have about the real world. Let me just put it this way. There's a big, huge social media platform that often finds itself, you know, in the midst of challenged democracy and democratic systems, primarily because they may not see how their technology is impacting a larger and more broader and global ecosystem. If we actually had people like yourself, Deb, and others who were in the middle of these conversations on whether or not we should automate something or have oversight during the course of the implementation or challenge the actual prediction, I think we would be a lot better because we would develop what I believe are secure systems. I've been working on this Energy Star rating, which is like a certification system. And my argument there is like, this is the new economy. And as I wanna trust a bank teller with my money to put it in the vault, I wanna trust a company with my algorithm to make sure I'm getting it optimized to my preference. And so I think going forward, we're gonna see a lot more discussions like that. And in fact, I wouldn't be surprised in a few years if we don't start seeing computer scientists having as a requisite a social science class.
Oh, I love your idea. My dream, my vision is to build a curriculum for ethical technology with a class in ethical technology adapted for all majors on campus. So I endorse, I endorse your vision. I would love to hear your thoughts on how to build it. We're getting to the end of our time. So I, I, here's a question from somebody who teaches college students in the context of tech at the intersection of ethics, politics, and equity. The two others who teach students in that arena, how do you approach teaching about tech in the context of digital inclusion? What are the key concepts that you want your students to understand or come away with? Well, I think when it comes to, say, teaching sociologists, and I know that Nicole will have some things to say about this. She teaches in a program that I started, a professional master's program for public safety, and she helps Mm -hmm. teach our tech sequence. At the University of Maryland, I also direct the Lab for Applied Social Science Research, and we have an innovative virtual reality training program for law enforcement. And part of the way that I think about it is if you if you have computer scientists or engineers, it becomes kind of easy. They understand the language. When you mention certain things, they, they can visualize it. But what I found useful for teaching students, say, in the social sciences to, to get them to expand their range of tech is to show them. And then from there, I backtrack it in. So oftentimes show them all the gadgets. I show them how cool it is. And then I start to layer in the concepts. I talk about obviously all the things that we've been talking about now. How do we talk about the digital divide? What do we mean by AI? What do we just mean by algorithms? How do they operate? Um, how are they legislated? Which of course becomes one of the interesting things. And one of uh, and one aspect that I'm quite interested in are, are the limited ways that we oftentimes see this tech being regulated. And then I also tell them about the influence that public attitudes have. For example, <laughs> I mean, nearly 75% of people believe that facial recognition is accurate. Now, now there are huge demographic differences. I mean, only 40% of Black people trust police's use of facial recognition, but that doesn't mean that they don't trust technology. They distrust police using it. And I think that becomes something in, important to note. And, and again, what's interesting is that considering 75% of people believe that facial recognition accurately identifies people, that means that when someone is identified, even if they're misidentified, people view that as truth. And as we've mentioned before, there are some important things. I mean, not only does this technology or is it less likely to accurately identify women, particularly Black women, misclassifying not only them among themselves, but also even misclassifying their gender based on their hair. Um, But then also this technology misclassifying people, uh, confusing professional athletes for criminals and even California lawmakers, for example, uh, with the software misclassifying them. And so so part of thinking through this is, is layering it up and helping them to understand what you can optimally do with the tech, but then to explain what are the limitations, the policy limitations, the limitations on public understanding, and then helping them to say, your job is to not simply use this tech or just implement it, but instead to think of how to use it responsibly, how to make it better. And oftentimes that depends on whether or not they're consumers, whether or not they're using the tech for research, or whether or not they're using using the tech or discussing the tech as a way to help shape policy. Well, you know, I think when I'm teaching courses, and as Rashawn said, I've taught with the University of Maryland. I give a lot of lectures to course to student groups, and it's it's the great problem to have that every time I open my mouth, that somebody is emailing me on LinkedIn or Facebook or somewhere trying to figure out how I could come talk to their students. I mean, I think first and foremost, what I tell students is what I learned as a sociologist is that we need to represent any type of models that we develop within the unique and authentic lens of the subject. And so we need to be mindful that as I was doing my book 
and why it had t- has taken me so long. You know, one, I couldn't stop after like that last chapter I shared with the going to Marion, Alabama and West Phoenix because there were so many things that happened in the pandemic that affected people. And so I always tell students as a sociologist, I am concerned with structures and systems, but I'm concerned with them on the effect on people. Mm-hmm. And people can be consumers, they can be constituents, they can be, you know, everyday folks that are trying to make a living that are in some way being disrupted by by these new technological systems or ones that we have not yet created. And so when you start to contextualize the the development and the implementation of these models around the context of people, I think you begin to see that things change. And what's so fascinating that I tell students about this space, particularly the space of ethical technology, is that we're not dealing with binary or right or wrong answers anymore. Because as we know with algorithms, it's like a snake. It picks up the particles at the end of the, you know, the bottom of the ocean or whatever surface, and it forms their protective covering to keep them away from prey. And right now we're in a society where the algorithmic economy, because it knows our likes, our interests, and our affinity groups is doing the same thing. It's keeping us protected, but yet keeping us closed into the polarized views of others. And so when you understand how these systems affect people in these manners, step, you begin to develop not just an ethical conscience, but one that I think is more provocative than the everyday break it and fix it later mm-hmm. kind of mode or rush to market. You develop products and services that can find the right vaccination mix to cure a pandemic, or you're able to use the right surveillance tools to help us in climate change, or you're able to take people who are digitally disconnected and give them the reason for acculturating the technological base and platforms for their good. And so I'm an optimist, right? Even though I say (laughs) a whole lot of stuff. And, you know, people oftentimes see me as, you know, the person who takes some of the wind out of the party. I think it's important for us to keep that in mind that everything that we do affects the human subject. Mm -hmm. And that human centered approach, I think, is going to be the future of not just public interest technology, but Mm -hmm. it may be the future of what keeps a business in business. Right. Because it can actually help reduce their reputational risk. One last question. I like to ask guests on the podcast to share their wisdom, advice and directives about how the next generation of technologists and humanists who engage with tech, imagine it, build it, critique it. I'd like to ask you to to share your wisdom with them. What would you want that next generation to know, to understand, to do in their next steps following their time as students as they embark on their careers? Yeah, I I mean, I'm going to be like a Black Baptist preacher and just give them three points, right? (laughs) I mean, the first thing is understand that you are an active change maker within this tech ecosystem, that you, as many other people, have the ability to use the technology for good or bad. And you have the ability to use the technology, much like the 14-year-old in the George Floyd case that took out her cell phone to be courageous when she wanted to reveal just the injustices that were being incurred against him. And ultimately, she she made a statement as an active participant in the tech space to share you know, what was going on. You have that ability as a thinker 
you also have that ability as one that can be part of history. As my old boss used to say, which part of history do you want to be on? Do you want to be the one that the page has already turned or do you want to be the one that the page is actually being written? And then I would say secondly to people that, you know, this tech process is participatory. So not only can you make change, but you can also participate in other work groups for that change. As I've mentioned, you know, there's always been lots of books of why all the black kids sitting together, why the white kids sitting together, why all the Latina kids sitting together, the Asian American kids sitting together. Let's just break that and just say, why are all the technologists sitting together? Let's put the social scientists at the table. Let's make it, mix it up by diversity. Let's start talking about equity. And I think this generation is poised to do so. My 14 year old, she's like the one that tells me everything she reads on the internet about social justice. I thought I was the one that was, you know, holding that tiara, but it's her. And I think, you know, unlike my generation, information is more readily available and you have a choice, you know, to be able to bridge those alliances so that you could just create much more comprehensive, cogent and equitable tech. And then I would say three, listen to these types of conversations engage yourself in conversations that are beyond your comfort zone find a space and I, I really place this out there for the women and, and students of color don't sit outside the door but be part of the the problem solving and the solutions I often share with people that it took me a long time as a woman in technology for less you know 15 to 20 years I started as a digital activist building computer labs and I later went to Washington DC now being at Brookings but it took me a long time to recognize that I have a space in this place and I think it's important to also tell students who may feel like you didn't grow up as you said earlier with the tools needed to, to create code or you weren't around people that had tablets instead of books you know guess what if you don't show up and be present to what's happening in this world around us and get involved with this space somebody else is going to design your experience and you will land up being the product versus the producer so mm -hmm. those are the three things I usually tell students and it's three things that actually guide my own life I'm one of those people from New York that I talk the talk and walk the walk, if you haven't heard my accent all <laughs> podcast. But I think that those are important ways to sort of get into the space, know that you are part of the conversation and you're not just the person being studied for the conversation. Well, thank you so much. And can you just share the title of your upcoming book? Yes, please get my book, Digitally Invisible, How the Internet Created the New Underclass. It'll be available this fall, winter from Brookings Press. So if you want to know more about when it's coming out, you follow me on Twitter at, at Dr. Turner Lee. Uh, Rashawn Ray is at Sociologist Ray. And you'll be up to date with all the things that we're producing at Brookings. We also have a podcast, Tech Tech Podcast, that takes the same thing like you're doing, Deb, just real hard legislative regulatory issues and makes them palatable for everyday people. And we have a Tech Tech newsletter, as well as um, a conversation going on through paper around AI bias, all available on the Brookings website. That's brookings.edu. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Thanks so much. And I'm excited to have you back when yes, the book please. comes out. <laughs>